Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Broadcast, our regular podcast to discuss pensions and saving. I'm your host, Rachel Meadows. I'm Head of Proposition here at Broadstone and I'm joined by my co-host and Technical Director, David Brooks. Hello. We've got another guest with us a little bit later. Uh, Our colleague Nick Brazier is going to talk about how to engage young people in pension savings. And also we've got our regular Myth of the Month slot where we're looking at the protections given to pensions. However, before we get to that, we're just going to look at a little bit of breaking pensions news. So Dave, tell us about what the regulator's doing on diversity. Uh, Yeah, thanks, thanks, Rachel. So the regulator has um, recently issued their diversity strategy, um, and it wasn't picked up that much by the pensions press in the world. But I thought it was an interesting um, document and something you don't always expect to get from from them. I mean, it was it was fairly wide ranging and is actually quite a quite a lot to read in there, a lot of statistics. And it it was developing their discussions they've had with organisations across the industry and about how they want to embed diversity and inclusion um, throughout the regulator and how it will support the regulated community that they um, they work with to do the same. So I'd say it covers lots of areas. Um, so it includes goals they have for reducing pay gaps for underrepresented groups, um, increasing diversity in their workforce by 2025, and increasing representation of black and ethnic minorities and LGBT plus on their senior leadership teams and executive so it's it's interesting stuff, and I think it's I think it's really good of them to be doing this. And they've also um, pledged to look at the um, into the evidence why pension inequalities occur. It's another hot topic that a lot of people are talking about. Um, they're going to work with other regulators, government industry industry groups, and they've also established a board diversity industry working group to help establish a plan to make trustee boards, um, or they're now calling governing bodies, uh, make them more diverse and develop a hub for resources to achieve this. So it's there's a lot in there and um, they're setting some quite bold targets to to increase it. And it's something that the industry is going to have to, to look at. So I was just going to ask you, Rachel, because there's a lot in there and we're not going to go through all of it. But I was just you know asking you, you know, whether you welcome this initiative and what your views on it are, but, but in particular what your views are on the gender pensions gap is something that a lot of people are talking about and how we can Im- improve this. Yeah, absolutely. So like like you rightly say, there is a lot in here and it's a very worthwhile initiative for lots of very good business reasons, you know, other than uh, consumer and member outcomes when we're looking at diversity. You know, there's lots of good reasons why financial services business need, need to be leading the charge out on this front. Coming on to the gender uh, pension gap, though, I mean, that that really is topical. We've had lots of movement on the gender pay gap in recent years with firms having to report around that issue. And we've had knowledge building about the existence of the gender pension gap, which in some ways is more damaging because actually that's the more long lasting impact. And at least if you know about a gender pay gap whilst you're still working, in theory, you can change roles, move jobs, make decisions that you know, can change your financial outcome. Once you're in retirement, that's much more difficult to change. So some of the damages uh, in the gender uh, gender pensions gap are caused quite early in your career. And I think some of the uh, interesting bits within the plan or some of the areas where we can make the biggest difference it is looking into some of the reasons why those pension inequalities occur in the first place. And this will be useful not just for gender pension gaps, but for you know all, all of the different inequality gaps that occur. And 
some of those changes might be structural. You know, it might be things like addressing pay and making sure we've got the right progression plans in place that people from different groups get the right access to career progression opportunities uh, as they go through their working lives. And some of them actually come down to making sure that people have access to the right information at the right time, because some of these gaps come about simply because of a lack of education and knowledge about why uh, why gender pension gaps particularly occur. And one of the big, um, you know, one of the biggest examples to my mind is something that, you know, we're working with some of our clients at the moment in looking at your HR policies around uh, staff that go on maternity leave or staff that request uh, changes to their working hours. So they perhaps uh, request a a reduction to part time hours. Now, that isn't just exclusively women. You know, that could be anyone at any life stage. But one of the useful prompts that you can provide to staff at that stage is directing them to pension guidance or providing them with information, because most people that request a reduction to part time hours do their maths really, really carefully about their current earnings you know they look at oh can I afford to go down to to three days rather than five you know can we still pay the bills can we still cover the nursery fees you know can we still do the things that we want to do but actually very few people sit down and think okay well my pension contributions are five percent of my pay if I reduce my hours what does that do to my pension contributions and do I understand how that's going to reduce my pension later in life and if you knew to ask the question or you knew to do the maths at that point, it might be quite affordable for you to increase your percentage contribution to keep your pounds and pence pension contribution the same. But if you're not armed with that information and you don't know to ask the question, you're never going to be able to do it. So that's a, a big reason why that gap occurs. Yeah. Um, are there any other sort of systemic issues as well? I mean, I was thinking about how the auto-enrollment rules actually work. You know, they can be discriminatory towards those with more flexible working or you know and that tends to be women who have you know part-time multiple jobs those kind of things yeah they absolutely can you're you're spot on there and making sure that um, people are auto enrolled from the first pound of earnings will go a long way to addressing the gender pension gap making sure that some of the anomalies in the tax relief system that I think we've talked about previously Mm -hmm. you know that those sorts of things all go to contributing to closing that gap Um, even for businesses that are looking at um, recruitment and their intake, looking at, you know, graduate recruitment is one thing that companies have got nailed. And actually, you don't tend to find gender pay gaps and gender pension gaps in the first, you know, on average 10 years of someone's working life where you see those gaps and pay and pension gaps start to widen is at the point uh, where, Uh, actually people have progressed a little way up the tree and then they might go part-time or take leave to have a family so giving some real thought to how flexible working can work with some you know roles that that are you know progressed more senior roles within your organization and looking at uh, recruitment and intake policies for second jobbers career changes and that's a big one for financial services because actually uh, second jobbers can have a lot of the life skills that go into make a really great advisor. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So, Dave, looking back to the pensions regulator, how mm. can they really look to address diversity on trustee bodies? Yeah, they've been wrestling with this for a little while. They often stick out a blog or two thinking about how they can improve it because they do recognise it is an issue. Um 
trustee boards are there was a PLSA survey a few years ago that suggested there were 83% male so that's not great on that that front um and you know and that's in a sense it's probably not surprising given the nature of the people who are going into these trustee roles professional trustee roles we're talking about on that side but um you know actuaries and lawyers who are looking to move on from doing those roles um so it is an issue um but also it's it's perhaps it's a little bit simplistic just to look at it as you know male v females you know that, that that's a problem and we have to address it but i think one of the more interesting areas is to think about how how you address it in sort of diversity meaning difference diversity doesn't necessarily mean you know just just having someone from a different a different gender will think in a different way but maybe trustee boards need to be more conscious of the way they are making decisions the way they're taking advice um and the way they're recruiting people onto their board to make sure they're from a variety of of backgrounds making sure they reflect the members that they're actually you know working for you know providing the benefits fits for um so i think i think they're the areas that i think the regulator is probably going to look at in the future you know okay there's not, not much you can do with gender issues but there might be more you can do with actual methodology and actual um, act- activities that trustees take and getting them involved with selection processes you know with member nominated trustees so they can target the skills that they need on that board at that time and i don't know from your perspective what, what you know what you can see that would work I think you're right that selection processes are a big part of this because understandably sometimes people tend to recruit or appoint to trustee bodies people that remind them of themselves and the pro- you know the problem there is that these issues can become self-perpetuating because you tend to agree with and you know find that their opinions resonate with you and because they have a similar life experience to you but that doesn't necessarily create a really great diverse trustee board that resonates with your members and helps you think about the challenge of how to engage with your membership and you know it's the same in the corporate world as well isn't it because yeah that diversity of background is a big one Uh, and I know it's even something that we've thought about internally when we're looking at things like work experience placements you know we're a, a professional white collar industry and you know a lot of work experience placements historically maybe are because your parents already work in a great industry or your parents have got contacts in good industries that they can get you good work experience placements in and that can result in some of these social norms just continuing mm. so uh, one of the things that we've done in terms of our work experience placements is that yeah we will you know we'll still provide work experience placements to a, a variety of candidates but we've actively partnered uh, in some of our office locations with local charities that arrange work experience placements for uh, local schools, you know, children that are have a working class background and wouldn't necessarily have the family contacts to be able to negotiate those work placements themselves. And so I think thinking creatively and at an earlier stage, although it's a bit of a long term fix, I think those are some of the things that corporates and trustee bodies need to have in their arsenal when they're trying to address this problem, because there isn't really a, a simple one size fits all solution. Mm. No, I like the idea of, you know, I can think of people I've worked with over the years, you know, on a trustee board where they're very similar, very similar people, very similar life experiences. 
and you get very little dissension. You know, people are pretty much going along with with the consensus, and that you know that's all well and good. Um, but I think it's good to get somebody on the board that is from a different perspective that will just make people stop and think. And you know, are, are you are we dwelling too long on the wrong areas? You know, because they're the, the ones that have particular interest to certain people on the board or all the board. If they're of a certain type, they're ignoring a whole area over the here, over over um you know over here, or you know they're dwelling on things and not uh, reacting quickly to things because of just that's the way it's always been all that kind of you know i think it's good to you know yeah have strategies to try to to mix that up and get people and get yeah i mean i think an age age thing is probably a bigger a big one as well is that a lot of people on trustee boards these days are probably in their 50s and 60s and perhaps you're having people who are younger and again if we're talking dc schemes maybe more like the membership who can actually bridge that gap and get those trustees who might be brilliant at what they do looking at investments and those kind of things you know but you know, get their focus on other areas where they might be able to make more more benefit for the members. I think that's probably something to think about as well. Absolutely. And we'll be bringing Nick into that conversation mm. uh, very shortly. I mean, just before we move on to that then, Dave, do you sure. think the member-nominated trustee role is an area which could be taken more advantage of to try to address some of these gaps? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the problem with member-nominated trustees from my perspective, and I've, I, I debated a guy on a pensions expert podcast about this a few years ago. My view is that I think they should have a selection panel. So you go to the members and say, nominate who you'd like to be on the board. But rather than leaving it to the members to vote, I think it should go then to a selection panel of which you, there are rules around how that has to be set up. So you need to have member and employer nominated trustees and they can look at the candidates in relation to the skills that are already on the board. And, you know, with an eye on diversity and with an eye on the membership and ensure that person that comes on has the skills they need rather than I don't want to be too dismissive, but rather than leaving it to the vagaries of democracy, because that doesn't always give you necessarily the best outcomes. I'm not advocating fascism, but I'm just advocating a more selective approach, you know, and the the regulator wants trustee boards to act like businesses. And I can't think of any business that, you know, know, has, has board members decided by a ballot. You know, you would we would have some kind of selection process and then pick and choose the person who would be best best suited for the board. So I still th- I think that should be a way forward for trustees. That sounds valid. OK, so we're now going to welcome Nick Brazier, our guest slot for today, talking about the challenge of engaging younger people with their pension savings. So Nick is one of the senior consultants here at Broadstone, specialising in advising employers around financial well-being strategies and all aspects of pensions and benefits. Hi, Nick. Hi, Rachel. Hi, David. So, Nick, tell us, why is it such a challenge to engage younger people with pension saving? Um, well, I, th- I think first and foremost, it, it's probably the language that we tend to use in the industry. Um, I, I think if we think about just the word pension in isolation, as soon as you mention you know, that P word and you think of your Google image, well, for most people's Google image, it's old people it's you know it's a long way away it's just not going to sort of get them sort of thinking oh, okay i'm really interested in this so i think first and foremost it's changing get rid of that p word because you know between the three of us we know that there are so many different aspects to pensions and so many different types of pensions that you know between the three of us we're not qualified to talk about all of them ourselves we've worked in the industry you know for probably 60 years between the three of us so i think that's the first thing so get rid of the word pension is one of the, the key things and refer to things like you know long-term savings with a goal and objective attached to it and if people think about what they're aiming towards 
the more likely to take a step back and think, okay, that makes a bit more sense. So it's, it's, it's language first and foremost, I think. That makes sense. And I like the idea of talking about long term savings, because I think that's one of the real challenges, isn't it? Because for younger people these days, they've got quite a lot of financial challenges, some of which probably feel a lot more immediately pressing. So paying off big student loans, trying to get on the ever lengthening housing ladder and just coping with general affordability. So, yeah, throw pensions into the mix. And that's quite a lot of pressure when you're just starting out in your career. Yeah, totally. And, and and I think that it also shouldn't be just about the long term as well. As, as you mentioned, then people, you know, we, we all tend to think a little bit more hand to mouth. And if you link short term savings with what that's for, medium term savings and long term together, it starts to knit it together. And I, I do tend to find, though, that when, when talking to younger people, they get short term, you know, it's money in a bank or an ISA or a cash ISA and what that is. They sort of get pensions. They know something so far away. They might not understand the nuances, but they know it's so far away. Where I find there's a blind spot is what's the difference between short to medium. And that's the challenge. They don't quite get that. And it's it's sort of, you know, bringing the conversation to, you know, interest rates, inflation and things like that. And a line we'll commonly hear is that, oh, I've got an ISA, but it's rubbish. Well, it's straight away it shows complete lack of understanding that it's not the ISA and the ISA is, you know, that's just the messenger. You know, it's actually interest rates and not understanding stocks and shares. And, and then you mentioned stocks and shares and then that can sort of scare people a little bit. So, again, it's trying to sort of break down the the way we communicate, really, and get people to understand that short, medium and longer term conversation. So for employers and trustees, then, I guess the first part of that engagement challenge with pension saving sounds like it's financial education and helping to build some of that knowledge gap that exists. Yeah, no, you're right, I think. And also it's the change in the narrative to an employer of how they think about it as well. So, you know, you just mentioned financial education. And if you have better financial education in the workplace and, you know, lots of studies show that employees rely on their employers for, you know, such messages. So if employers think, OK, if I educate, you know, help educate my, you know, my staff financial education, that will lead to better financial well-being, be it short, medium to long term, which are all, all intertwined with each other. And I guess that can then be more complex than pensions and savings products as well, then, can't it? Because, you know, you can even start to bring in things like debt. I mean, where do employers start when they're trying to put together a strategy on the financial aspects of this? Well, from where, where, where I sit, you know, as boring as it may sound, we, we, we run a lot of pension scheme governance. And within the governance meetings, we have data and we have the demographics within the pension scheme. And then we can start to pull out, OK, well, you've got, you know, 30 percent of your workforce are aged between sort of 20 and 35. And, you know, then you've got a bit in the middle here and then you've got a certain element towards the back end of or close towards retirement. So first and foremost, you've got to break out who and how you communicate and just change the focus on that communication. So that, that, that's the that's the easy, low hanging fruit from our perspective. Then what our job is, as I see it, is to help bring that communication to life and, you know, talk about the things that matter because, you know, in a workforce, you can have three to four generations in an employer. And if you start talking about pension freedoms to a 25 year old, they might be interested, but they probably won't be that interested, really, because there's another 40 odd years to go till they can you know, take any action on such things. But having said that, I think, you know, your opening question was that the challenges for younger people. When we do such sessions, there's this assumption that younger people won't be that engaged or won't want to know. But I, I think it's quite the contrary, to be honest. You, as soon as you get in there, they, they want to know more. And I think it's down to, you know, the, the millennial or generation wise have the world at the fingertips and they want to know more 
And I think, you know, understanding where your money's invested and the fact, oh, you have control over that, you know, in a, you know, in a DC world where, where we exist and you can control your money's invested. And I think even things like, you know, ESG and, you know, environmental social governance factors, that they're much more in tune with, with such things. And even today, I've read that, you know, Make My Money Matters have released um, a study around, uh, you know, by becoming, you know, by investing more sustainably, you can reduce your carbon uh, footprint by 21 more times and becoming a vegetarian and giving up flying combined. So using that message, that's going to get someone younger and go, oh, okay, that makes sense, rather than, you know, just talking about investments and, you know, stocks and shares. And also Royal London, also today, I think it was, um, released some uh, study around um, about 66% of people, particularly younger people, between 18 and 34, want to invest their money more sustainably. And also they want to know why and where it is and the impact it's having as well. So I think there's different ways and angles you can really get under the skin and get them to want to know more. And they're the sort of questions we get asked about. And once they know they're empowered and, you know, they can find out this information on an app or, you know, online and actually have some control over it, they're more likely to engage. So that's one aspect I think people can look at. I think that's a really important point then, isn't it? Because, you know, I think maybe trustees and employers might have been guilty in the past of focusing their education and support efforts around pension at the older end of the workforce, the over 50s that are asking them questions about taking the pension. But yeah, from what you're saying, there is a big dividend to be had for employers and trustees in providing that education content much earlier. And there's an appetite for that. I I think also as well, another big one for me, when you speak to people, it's understanding tax relief and their contributions, because, again, all all people see really is they've been auto enrolled, so they've not to make a decision. All they actually see a lot of the time is a a deduction on a payslip. And that's it. That's their pension and an annual statement every year. And it's a bit like, what does this mean? Shoebox under the bed. and, And there it goes. The rest of the stuff where reality is when you break it down and show someone, you know, someone's earning 30,000 pounds a year, for example, and they've got a 5% matching scheme and they have a, say, a salary sacrifice method, you know, you, you, and the net cost of that individual is £85 and being invested, assuming the employer gives back the employer and I, £267. So if you're turning £85 into £267 and they see those numbers and not just a gross deduction on a payslip, which they probably don't even look at anyway, then it starts to mean something and you can say, oh, okay, now I understand that. And, and an example of this only, only you know, last week was I was, I was on a one-to-one with someone who was thinking about ceasing his contributions because he had sort of more shorter term focus and he was in a scheme where it's three percent by the employee and seven by the employer and when i broke it down he was going oh actually why would i do that and then he actually increased his contribution on the back <laughs> of oh actually this doesn't make any sense because all he sees is a, is a gross deduction on the payslip so in actual fact when they understand the nuts and bolts from you know the starting point of what it costs you you can't turn that 85 pounds into 267 anywhere else you know, so again, it's it's really powerful for them understanding the contributions and actually, you know, at a starting point. I think that's that probably is the crux of this whole piece, isn't it? It's the right information at the right time. Yeah, completely. You know, and those small changes early on can make a massive impact, can't they? Because you know, it's so powerful to engage younger people because. You know, I'm sure you can wax lyrical about, you know, the power of your contribution in your 20s and 30s compared with the yeah. power of the same contribution in your 50s. So, and I think that one one of the things that I think can be dangerous sometimes are, um, are some of these references around, you know, you hear a lot about take your age, divide it by two, and that will give you, you know, the pension you need. And, and I think the problem you have there is if you talk to a 35-year-old and they work it out going, well, that's 17.5%, I'm not going to bother. 
you know, they get sometimes deterred by it. So natural fact, the, the big piece missing there is that it's when you start. So it's not actually where you finish. And actually, it, I don't know, sometimes those messages can be more dangerous than help, I find. So, again, breaking it down and make sure you think, you know, you're never too late. It's just how you look into what you're looking to achieve and what you can do where you are now and looking back stuff they've collected over those you know first early years as well because as you said starting in your 20s and they could have been all-term rolled you know had up to you know nearly 10 years worth of contributions since, since 2012 now and that could you know really be worth something they just don't know about yet so again it's sometimes even those things can be harmful rather than helpful can some of the other sort of pensions traditions or pensions rules of thumb also be quite harmful when you're talking to younger people when we're thinking about the kind of pension that you need to target? So traditionally in the past, when we've thought about targeting pension income. We're thinking about a position where you are likely to have paid your mortgage off, where your children are likely to have left home. Do those norms still hold true in our land of ever rising house prices? And if they don't necessarily hold as true as they have in the past, how, what does that mean for people in terms of what sort of pension income they need to target? Yeah, I think, well, I think those messages can still be helpful, but you've got to be careful, like you're saying, that people can't afford to jump on that ladder in their mid-20s as a generation or so did. It's going to be later and then they, you know, they've got more debt into retirement. So, you know, getting half your income in retirement, for example, but you've got a mortgage to your 75, you know, that doesn't, you've got to look at people a bit more holistically and get them to think about, right, you know, borrowing such a, you know, ladled with so much debt to a later date, you've got to think about your long-term savings as well. So they, I think they can be helpful, but you've got to sort of quantify it with individual circumstances and you might, people might be renting as well, you know, still again, people might not get on that you know, property ladder and end up, you know, with half an income might be fine because you've only got domestic bills to consider. So I think, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tricky one, I think. It's it's harder to, because you've got to look, can't be a broad brush, you know, generalisation. It's got to be, that's something to aim towards. However, your circumstances might dictate that you need to do something different. Yeah, and that that's really important, isn't it? That information, education go a long way, but it's always got to come back to that understanding people and every everyone is a little bit different when it comes to their financial plan aren't they mm. i mean just thinking about engagement methods so you know there's a big challenge here for trustees and employers isn't there because you mentioned the number of different generations that they're trying to talk to within their workforce and within their pension scheme membership this is a big challenge are the methods of engagement different that they need to use with younger staff I think, well, it can be. I think, you know, the last 18 months or so has taught us that, you know, we're all working remotely and you can get to a wider audience a lot quicker. So, you know, webinars and, and Teams and Zoom and the likes are, are a useful method across all generations, if I'm honest with you. Um, however, I think sometimes more to, to the point digital content can help because sometimes trying to get someone in a room to, you know, have a meeting at a certain time isn't always that useful or, you know, not always viable for people. But if you can get people to watch something, wherever that may be, on a phone, call to action, and then they can be reactive to say, oh, that could affect me. So I think sometimes digital content around videos, um, you know, webinars, and, you know, I do still think that there's a lot of validity in us going out and seeing people face to face because, you know, there is something, you know, slightly missing when we're doing it, you know, on a video call. But, yeah, there's, there's diff very different ways we can do it. And it depends on the employer as well and the industry and the way they've been communicated to. So where our role comes into play is that we've got to try and get under the skin of the employer so we understand how it works best for them because we can have the best idea in the world how we think it is. Doesn't work. If it doesn't work for them, it doesn't work for them. We've got to make sure it's done in the right manner. 
Well, I see that's it. It's making sure you're using the whole array of tools at your disposal, but using the ones that are going to be most effective for your okay. staff because there's no point sitting down and trying to make a you know a TikTok video and yeah. you know aiming it at a load of staff <laughs> that aren't really using their phones. And you know, I'm sort of tongue in cheek yeah. mentioning TikTok videos, but they they are quite topical yeah. in the financial news today, aren't they? I really, yeah, well, I was going to try and mention. Yeah, that's uh, you know, how do you compete with? Kim Kardashian promoting Bitcoin or something, you know, and, you know, I know they've issued rules now to try to stop it. But I think how you address the way people are being spoken to about finance and about about money, and, you know, the employers doing all the right things and trying its best and flyers and webinars and all the rest of it. But do they need to be a bit more out of the box thinking and try to do something and get people like you say, you sit on the sofa watching, a, you know, a bit of digital content. But they're going to swipe on that pretty quickly and go back to yeah. TikTok and whatever. How do you just grab their attention just for a few minutes? You don't need to just for a few, just to get that message in, even a few seconds. I don't know. Yeah, do you know what? It's a, it's a great question. Had to uh, make. <laughs> I didn't expect TikTok Sorry. to be coming up. <laughs> Is it just people? Can't I think the, the fact that they've had to make rules about this, yeah. I guess comes back to the point that you made earlier nick about the fact that there is a genuine appetite for financial and pensions knowledge from younger people this is not something that they don't want to hear about i think well, they, want, they want to make money you know they're aspirational they want to have a, yeah. a good lifestyle and they see someone who's got a great lifestyle telling them the way i got there was by doing this or people telling them to do different ways of trading I'm, i don't know the terminology you know doing different ways of trading you know um you know using these apps and, and whatnot and i think it's it's scary that they you know they are showing a level of interest but it's that whole sort of dunning kruger thing where you they don't really understand how little they understand about what they're being told and you know they're being chucked in the deep end and fractional investing all this kind of stuff but you want something reliable you want something you can trust and surely you can trust your employer and it's just i suppose it's a way of yeah. getting the language right I think, yeah i think i think you know social media is you know the wild wild west in terms of mm. how people communicate and I think that the, probably the key word there, as you said, is, you know, do you trust your employer? And that's what it comes down to. Or do you trust Kim Kardashian trying to sell <laughs> your Bitcoin? I mean, you know, there's the sort of question. I think that you but, but also Rachel mentioned then that there's clearly an appetite for it. If Kim Kardashian is involved um, then, you know, using TikTok, then people want to know about it because someone's making money out of it somewhere. But it's finding the balance of how you communicate. And, I've, you know, I've not come up with a, a TikTok recording of how you sort of talk about tax relief yet but you know maybe that's the way to go I don't know I think and also it's probably from our perspective in our industry we need younger people telling us what to do you know how they how do they want communicating because it's all very well good us sitting around here talking about it but we need to be quicker on how you know more nimble on how we, how we sort of adapt and change ourselves yeah, yeah. and that that's the point isn't it if trustees and employers are working with their advisors it comes back to those listening and survey exercises and before you decide what your staff want you might want to ask your staff what your staff want yeah, exactly um, yeah and it goes back to what we're talking about on trustee boards of getting the right people on there you know i'm talking from my perspective you know advising trustees you know get the right people on there that understand how your members like to be communicated with you know and that goes across you know you know nick you've been asked to talk about the young persons thing been touched on other gender um other age groups but you know a lot of deferred members in pension schemes sitting on decent incomes they may not appreciate it may not understand it and that's been a failure from the past that we you know we're at risk of repeating but you know engaging with them telling them what a great great pension you've got here what it's going to give you what what it, what it can do for you and your your family so i think that's a lesson to be learned across you know across the, the pension spectrum yeah I agree. okay um so let's move on to our myth of the month this time um 
this is a common one that comes up a lot, um, especially amongst the general public, that they believe that their pension can be lost. They can go disappear forever. We get this a lot. I think some of it harks back to um, Robert Maxwell and what he did with the mirror pension scheme when he was um, taking loans out of the pension scheme. And also you hear it in the context of Sir Philip Green and BHS, people accusing him of stealing people's pensions, you know, whether he did or didn't, you know, well, he didn't. But, you know, it's an emotive, emotive topic. Also, it comes up with scammers a lot as well. Scammers like to suggest that people are going to lose, you're going to lose all your pension savings if you don't do this, you know, i.e. transfer out. We had a lot of that around the British Steel thing. So I think it's worth talking about. So from my side of the pensions world, where we deal a lot with, you know, obviously defined benefit pension schemes, we've got the Pension Protection Fund. So the Pension Protection Fund was set up in 2005 and um in response to disasters that happened before where people's employees had gone bust and their pensions were underfunded and they did lose their pensions. So the PPF was established to say, if your employer goes bust, your pension scheme will go into the Pension Protection Fund and the Pension Protection Fund will take over responsibility for paying your pensions. Um, so I'll just take just a couple of seconds, though. It's probably worth just, just noting what the compensation is. They call it compensation from the PPF. It's no longer a pension. But if you're um, over normal pension age and in re- receive a pension or you retired on ill health grounds or you're a dependent, you will get 100% of your pension in the PPF. So I repeat that, 100% of your pension will be paid. There is a but, so I'll come to that in a second. If you're not a pensioner, then you'll get 90% of your pension subject to the compensation cap. And the cap is currently around £40,000, just over £40,000. So lots of people will get their pension protected, albeit up to 90%. And that's fantastic. I think that should be applauded as a great initiative. The, the slight but is that the increases you get in payment are slightly less so than, the, well, than what might have been paid through the scheme. So your benefits that you earn before 97, they won't increase in payment. But the benefits after 97 are inflation linked up to 2.5%. But it's still great. And the other myth, there's a myth linked to PPF, that people think it's funded by uh, the taxpayer, which it isn't. It's funded by all the other defined benefit pension schemes. Um, in the UK, they all pay a levy, which is a bit like an insurance premium, which is based on the likelihood of that pension scheme going into the fund, and they pay a levy every year into that into the into the fund, and they manage that money, and they've got loads of money. They've got 36 billion pounds worth of assets in there now, paying three quarters no sorry 276,000 people, um, and so it's a brilliantly run scheme, really safe. You know, the PPF is something that is a shining light. In, in the pensions industry so that's it from the protection from my side Rachel do you want to comment on what the FSCS can do for people as well yes so on the defined contribution side of things we've got the financial services compensation scheme and most of our listeners will be aware of that in relation to banks and building societies it was talked about a lot when we had the credit crunch And these days with your defined contribution pension, it isn't linked to your employer. Your employer isn't putting the money under their uh, proverbial mattress. It is held by an insurance company or investment firms, and that money is invested. And if that uh, pension provider fails, if that insurance company fails, then you are protected under this FSCS scheme. So if your provider fails, it's 100% of your claim with no upper limit. 
If you're invested in a SIP, self-invested personal pension, you're capped at the £85,000 per eligible person per firm. So if you are in a SIP, you might want to watch how much you're saving and where. Um, And if you do receive bad uh, pension advice, you're also covered under the FSCS scheme as well. So if you do receive bad advice in relation to your pension, you can also be eligible to claim compensation. And again, that's that exact same £85,000 maximum claim per eligible person per firm. So some really robust uh, safety net protections as far as not being able to lose your pension on the defined contribution side of things. Therefore, rather than worrying about losing your pension, The most important thing for you to consider in terms of the value of your pension fund is where that's invested, whether it's invested in line with your attitude to risk, capacity for loss, and whether it's uh, all set up in line with your retirement objectives. So worry about that and getting engaged with the investment side of your scheme and whether you're saving enough in. Don't worry about whether it's all going to suddenly disappear is what I would suggest. Thanks very much for listening again. uh, And thanks very much to Nick for coming in. We'll be back after the school holidays and after we've all taken a well-deserved breather. So thanks very much uh, from me. Uh, Thank you from me. See you guys. Bye-bye. See you guys.